You're listening to Headway, a podcast to inspire the next generation of change makers. My name is Imogen Aylwin and I'm sitting down with social entrepreneurs, business leaders and big dreamers to hear about how they're creating impact in our fast evolving world. I'm very excited today to launch season two of Headway and to welcome Sophie Slater, the founder and CEO of Birdsong, a clothing brand committed to ethical and sustainable fashion. Sophie has been recognised for her brilliant work in the sector, being named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 and Wise's top 100 women in social enterprise. I'm looking forward to diving into the challenges that you're facing a little in the industry today. Um, Sophie, so a massive welcome to you to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. So Birdsong is a company that empowers women to dress in protest. What do you mean by that, Sophie? And perhaps you can tell us a little more about what exactly it is that you're protesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, We're a little bit unconventional, I should say, for a fashion brand because we didn't start out kind of working in the fashion industry. My experience was working in women's organisations and women's services and seeing how kind of chronically underfunded um, those services were and also loving clothing, um, but also coming at fashion from a view of feminism and workers' rights, which is kind of what I'd specialised in during my degree so kind of graduated had always worked in clothing shops and worked in vintage shops and was quite sustainably minded um and couldn't really reconcile my love of fashion with widespread kind of exploitation through sweatshop workers for example um you know like 93 percent of brands don't pay a living wage and also the environmental degradation and I kind of read Tansy Hoskins uh stitched up anti-capitalist book of fashion that really highlighted the kind of like endemic violence of the fashion industry and how it was still kind of related to a lot of I guess like colonial exploitation of of labour forces around the world and it made me think okay we've got all these women um, being supported by services in the UK who are a little bit older who face barriers to work who are migrant women who all have these fantastic skills in handicrafts that the British fashion industry is lamenting as, as kind of not being homegrown anymore so how can we reconcile like people's desire to shop better with also providing a livelihood for people who've been overlooked and marginalized and and face barriers to work so and that's kind of why we're a little bit different I guess because we are a social enterprise first and foremost um but I think you know like any kind of good idea like a lot of different tides were kind of happening we were seeing this resurgent feminism um we were seeing you know with the Rana Plaza collapse that happened um, the year we started was I think the first year of the fashion revolution campaign so there's a lot of people you know thinking about how to be critical about fashion and rebuild it in a way that that makes more sense and I think we were just a small part of that. So you have this background in activism and a little retail and women's organisations you were just speaking about briefly there. Tell us a little more about how all of those tides kind of culminated in you starting Birdsong. Was there a particular light bulb moment that, that triggered it? I think I had some really typical of the era experiences in the kind of early 2000s. I think it was 2007. I was scouted by Select Model Agency when I was 15. And being from a little seaside town on the coast up north, it was like the most exciting, glamorous thing that ever happened in my entire life that I could conceive of. So, you know, off I popped to London on the train and it was really exciting because it opened my world up to fashion journalism, which is something I'm still in love with. 
and you know when you grown up as a kid and all you've all you've kind of known as women's mags to to kind of see something that's a little bit more representative and diverse I think that that was you know the moment I kind of fell in love with fashion imagery and that was really exciting um but there was a lot of toxic kind of ideology that was kind of instilled and they were taught I was told you know you're perfect the way you are just stay like this till you're 19 when you know effectively had a woman's height but a child's body and it was very undiverse the agency there was a lot of policing of bodies I think I'm really lucky my mum's up at Northern used to be working class doesn't take any nonsense feminist and she was like I'll support you but you know she was very protective of me yeah that was a really interesting experience because I think then when I getting into women's activism it completely you know made me see what had happened for what it was and another experience I had was a couple of years later I ended up putting CVs in every shop in town when I moved to Bristol to try and get a retail job and the job I ended up getting was at American Apparel which was also really dodgy in terms of the kind of aesthetics they were espousing in a different way I had to sign an NDA to say that I wouldn't talk about the hiring practices because they'd rate your appearance on like a three-letter chart and if you were you know what they deemed hot you could work on the shop floor and if you weren't quite hot enough they might put you in the stockroom if you look at a lot of ethical and sustainable brands that have popped up in the past few years it's all ex-American apparel employees yeah those two those two things were like my absolute baptism of fire kind of introduction to what's wrong with retail and fashion at least I guess the behind the scenes side in in this country and then with the women's organization stuff um yeah I had some experiences as a teenager in terms of like gendered violence I remember being at university in my first week there was a series of sexual assaults and rapes like outside my halls and my halls rep came around and told the girls to all stay in after dark it was Manchester in the winter. It got dark at four o'clock. And I remember just being absolutely fuming at that suggestion. And then I decided the next year to run for women's rep. Spent the next four years kind of volunteering at Rape Crisis, doing projects with women and girls. And yeah, that, that was kind of where my awakening was. So to be able to form a company that hopefully, you know, doesn't have those contradictions where we can have fashion without exploiting women yeah, I think you've touched on it briefly in the conversation already. But for those people at home that might not have made this connection previously, can you describe that link a bit more between fashion, feminism and women's rights and how they all kind of come together? Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, most of us now know that, you know, 89 percent of the garment worker workforce are women. Also with crafting, it's traditionally seen as quite a feminine skill and that's why it's underpaid as well. I think in terms of like race and class, the way that brands profit, generate wealth is to exploit working class, people of colour, people in the global south and women. It's just it's just seeing that work is not particularly worthy of being paid. So that's kind of how the global fashion juice has operated. And the women's movement has always been really closely tied into fashion. So um, there was a Jewish anarchist called Clara Lenlick who was a garment worker she'd kind of escaped from the pogroms in Eastern Europe and arrived in New York and started working as a garment worker and they were made to work in really unsafe conditions all those kind of same fights that garment workers today are protesting about around the world and she and others helped organize the biggest kind of mass strike of women that happened at that point and it was called the uprising of 20,000 and yeah basically they did so much to champion 
all workers' rights, but also women's rights and the right to like an eight hour day, the right to holiday, the right for safe conditions, the right for like a minimum wage. And then that also became commemorated as, as the kind of origins of Women's Day, which was initially kind of Women Workers Day. So over the past year, it's obviously been a massive challenge for many businesses with COVID. And I'd love to just hear a little about perhaps some of the changes or maybe the pivots that you and the team have had to make during this time. I think it's really it's really funny actually because we in March before it all kicked off we decided we were only going to do made to order and this was completely independent of the pandemic this is just we don't want to waste anything we want to expand our size range because we did up to size 24 then but we do up to size 30 now and we were like if we make to order we don't have to kind of second guess what people want and then manufacture it and then have sizes that are really popular sold out so we were like we've got our supply chain super close we manufacture in London um and it was going to be like a a kind of one to three week wait if you um ordered something we've always done a bit of made to order but we felt like the time was right for the messaging around it we were also really really scared about like how people would react because obviously we're all used to the next day shipping and yeah we thought it made more sense sustainably and kind of ethically as well for for the workload of our makers rather than pushing our makers to work really hard and and deliver a collection over two months and then not have any work for a little while we, we you know we discussed with our makers and they were open to the idea of, of having designs that they work on as and when and then kind of evergreen products as well that they kind of work on for regular revenues for example our masks have been really great for that during lockdown especially because our makers could make masks from home so we commissioned hundreds of masks and scrunchies so that our makers still had a livelihood while their workshop was shut um, and the other thing is that our workshops are shut for like three months at a time because so we partner with charities rather than traditional factories. And the women's workshop that we work with for all our cut and sew, it's primarily women from a densely populated, low income area in Tower Hamlets. And we know now from reading the COVID BAME reports that Bengali communities are twice as likely to be hospitalised or like die from COVID. And, you know, whether that's through systemic healthcare racism or we we obviously don't know that but we knew we trusted obviously our charities that they would make the right decisions and and send um our makers home and, and ensure their safety basically in our warehouse as well we work with adults with learning disabilities so a lot of them have pre-existing health conditions so that was shut a lot of the time there was a couple of weeks in the summer when I was just packing t-shirts for like a few weeks straight to try and get through the backlog um, but yeah, basically we switched to made to order, launched this beautiful new collection, and then two weeks later, um, everything was shut down, and I was back in the northeast. Um, yeah, people really rallied around us, so that was really good, and we managed to have our best year yet and support our makers financially. I paid out the same amount of wages that we did the year before. Yeah, which feels really good, especially when you know so many brands have let down garment workers. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely something to be said for that anticipation of waiting to receive something, and we've all got so used to, like you say, receiving things the next day. So I think that's something we all need to be much more aware of and trying to champion a bit more um, ourselves. And so moving on a little now from from COVID, I mean, you briefly discuss this, but I'd like to talk about some of the ethics involved in the fashion industry. And for myself and maybe others at home, exploitation in the fashion industry is something we probably more commonly associate with perhaps developing countries. Now, is that a fair assessment on our part or is also the same thing happening on our own doorstep? absolutely happening on our own doorstep I think it was maybe the Financial Times who broke it in 2018 
Well, basically, there's, you know, there's been widespread reports. Topshop were using a sweatshop in Whitechapel in 2010. We've got widespread reports of tens of thousands of of garment workers in Leicester being paid £3 an hour. And that was included in a select committee report to MPs two years ago. MPs have known about this for a long time. But, you know, there was no action until it broke mainstream press about this time last year. So there's always been exploited labour. And I think that's why my experiences working in women's organisations really opened my eyes to that, because I have worked with survivors of trafficking and in modern slavery in this country. And it's I guess it's, it's a really unsexy, really horrible topic but it's so important for us to think about because I think you know I've been on fashion industry panels where I've said workers are being paid three pounds an hour in this country and there's been people who've just flat out refused to believe me but when you've worked with survivors and you know you know that these things are commonplace um there's always a race to the bottom with brands so it might be cheaper for them to pay three pounds an hour here and not pay for the shipping costs or it might be cheaper for them to go to a developing country but you know government workers in Bangladesh and union leaders there was a union leader that was assassinated in 2015 um there's real real repression of, of workers fighting for their rights but Bangladesh they've been doing an incredible resistance to global brands but I think unfortunately brands this is why brands don't own their own factories or work in kind of equal partnership with their factories they outsource to a number of different factories and they'll play them off against each other and say who can offer us the cheapest price and when, you know, Bangladesh's labour laws become better champions of, of workers' rights, they'll move, they're starting to move now to countries like Ethiopia, where there's less of union presence. Unfortunately, exploitation can be found in any country. When we look at the um, American penal system as well, a lot of clothing that's made in America is actually made by people imprisoned. You know, in prison, you can't make minimum wage. So that's effectively slave labour. So yeah, we, we definitely, it's definitely... In the richest countries, we still see exploitation and abuse of power. It's really horrible and it ties into all the biggest kind of exploitation of our time. And, you know, we look at the Uyghur camps in China as well, where I think two out of every five cotton products are produced. I think fashion is like a really good microcosm of capitalism, because if we look through fashion supply chains, we can find a lot. It holds a mirror up to a lot of what abuse and exploitation is going up in the world. And... It's such a kind of vast geopolitical industry that um, it encompasses a lot of history and politics and trade routes and scars of colonialism along the way. And that's why, you know, it's, it's so tragic to think about that these things are still happening, but we've got to be motivated and kind of also see the incredible forces of resistance that are going on around the world and, and the potential we have to make it better as well. Mm. Something that we're becoming more and more aware of is uh, fashion brands' ability also to manipulate the truth or perhaps the extent of their sustainable efforts. And I'm interested in that future of transparency or the traceability and how how that all works. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on on how we might be able to kind of track some of our products in the future and potentially know where the products have been grown, where they've been made and the, the kind of rights of the people involved in it. I think that's the fundamental thing. I think, you know, transparency is kind of step one. I think accountability is is the bigger, bigger elephant in the room. Um, fashion Revolution, who are incredible 
group of campaigners who've created this global campaign to make us think more about who made our clothes. They published a transparency index, which was only the world's richest brands. So arguably the ones who've profited the most of exploitation and polluted the most and produced the most kind of overstock. They they did an index of, of who's most transparent and surprise, surprise, the biggest retailer came out top and arguably they are okay they tell us where their their factories are but they don't tell us anything about you know what those those people make and that yeah that that was H&M you know I've reached out to H&M's press team and asked them about this and they just don't pay a living wage to a single person in the supply chain so no matter what they do no matter you know they can tell you reams of reams of information about all this technology they're investing in and um you know all their collections that are going to be made out of recycled all their aims they want to be carbon neutral by this day all this kind of thing all it comes down to is they don't pay their workers a wage that they can live comfortably in and you know is is sustainability doesn't mean anything if we're not sustaining quality of life for humans because that's that's what we're aiming towards right like we're aiming towards a world that is habitable for everyone but is it is it worth kind of investing millions in all this technology to affect future generations if you're not even paying your workers a decent wage here and now so we cannot trust brand marketing campaigns to speak authentically about sustainability and about human life because they are so detached from the reality of what's going on in these massive companies um you know they might have a fantastic marketing team who will really care about sustainability but they're going to be thousands of miles away from the, the lived reality of these garment workers. And and so in that case, how can we as consumers be aware of brands that are greenwashing? Is there, do you have any advice really for us to, to kind of become more aware of that and to be able to choose more responsibly, I suppose? Unless a brand says exactly how much their workers are paid, which obviously 99.9% of brands don't, then they're not paying a living wage and they're not ethical or not sustainable. Um, I think there's a lot of onus for like individual action. And I think, you know, if you've got the the privilege, the time, the resources to seek out more ethical and sustainable brands, if you've got the money to, to spend elsewhere, then do it. But also, you know, I think just like using the who made my clothes hashtag, writing to brands, like not saying don't stop shopping with them, but write to them about it and say, I'm really concerned. I'm I'm one of your biggest customers. Could you tell me more about the living wages that you pay? And like really interrogating them. We place too much onus on individual kind of choice. And, you know, that's no good for if you're on the breadline, mum of however many kids need to pop into Primark to buy some school trousers because your kid's fallen over. And obviously that's a really good thing that they offer is, you know, affordable school uniforms and that kind of thing. And anyone who's had to make the choice between you know clothes and what they're going to eat that week it is absolutely insulting to to say that you can't spend your money there but I think for those of those who do have the privilege and the time and energy saying to businesses look if you don't kind of clear up your act I'm going to take my business elsewhere um and yeah there's like apps like good on you which kind of give brands a rating system and, and a really good place to start for kind of brand literacy around sustainability there's people like Arja Barber on Instagram, who's on our board and also a good friend. And 
yeah but I think there's so much potential and that's why it gets really exciting I'd like to touch now on the kind of environmental side of the fashion industry Um, and as you well know after oil fashion is the next worst polluting industry in the world I'd like to just discuss perhaps what are some of the solutions both in terms of smaller scale manufacturing efforts or in terms of what the superpowers can can do in this space to reduce that yeah I think um I think it's something like 50% of all clothing is made from polyester which is effectively oil so obviously that's really polluting but yeah I think our biggest resource is trash and we need to be thinking about how we can use reclaimed materials as much as possible um but I I really I've been we kind of released a manifesto um last month about the six steps that the government could take to intervene in order to ensure that brands pollute less and make it easier for kind of small sustainable brands to flourish and part of that was investing in textiles recycling technology sometimes local councils recycle um textiles waste and it'll go to rag or insulation obviously we need a lot of insulation in this country so that's good but you know when you look at um it's like a textiles mill in sweden that has fiber to fiber completely new fabric made from waste um, which is incredible and i'd love to see something like that in the uk we all know that brands are just producing too many clothes. I think H&M produced 3 billion garments last year, so which is, you know, more than we could possibly ever wear. So, and most of them are polyester, which is just plastic and oil, um, which shed into the oceans and get into the little bellies of fish and cause all sorts of havoc. So, um, but yeah, there's all sorts of kind of innovation and like, I think you can go two ways. You can either go super high tech or you can go really back to basics and you know there's things like DJs working on and then there's also people like Patrick Grant who are kind of attempting to grow linen in in the um northwest of England again and I think both of those are really great solutions I feel like you need to come at it from always so yeah I think we use a lot of reclaimed fabrics which I think is a good way to start as, as I said trash is our is our biggest resource yeah there's some amazing ingenuity going on um in all sorts of kind of areas in terms of envir- in, in terms of the environment so it's fascinating to watch how they how they progress um you were advised sophie when you were setting up birdsong that it would be impossible to run a business with so much clout at its core how have you managed to prove those initial critics wrong along the way it's really interesting we're really slow and steady like we've not expanded really fast because we don't want to put any pressure on the supply chain i think like you know, we were founded seven years ago and we're still here today. We knew we were never going to be the next, you know, ASOS or H&M because we don't want to operate at that scale. But I think we've, you know, generated upwards of, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds for local women, which feels amazing. And that's, you know, our version of success. Um, and then the other prong that we had was just to create a blueprint for a better fashion industry. So I think like culturally, I'm really proud personally of what we've added to the conversation. I think, you know, back in 2014, when we started sustainability and ethics um, was still quite niche. It was still quite low down the agenda. And, you know, the amount of um, lovely people like you who just let me come on online podcasts I've been on or articles I've written or interviews we've done, you know, when we're just hammering home, people need living wages. Hopefully we've we've added to that conversation and, and shown up brands a little bit and maybe every person that follows us hopefully they're at least you know aware of of a better way of doing things that it is possible that you know 
exploitation doesn't need to be baked into business. You can run things without exploiting and abusing other people, basically, which seems really basic. But yeah, unfortunately, isn't the case for most fashion brands. So in terms of buying sustainably, obviously, alongside all of the lovely things that you're producing at Birdsong, what other British brands might you suggest for our listeners to check out who are also focused kind of on ethics and sustainability? I would absolutely recommend going to Sancho's Dress. They are an incredible ethical and sustainable boutique based in Exeter, but their online website has kind of been booming over the past year, um, run by my friend Kolkadan. And they've got so many great kind of thoughtful brands on there. She's also working to launch a resale platform, which is going to be coming out in June. So it's called Schwap. And I'm helping her on some comms for that. And Birdsong are also partnered. So you can shop Birdsong secondhand on that platform when it launches, which I'm really excited about. And places like Community Clothing, who are also a social enterprise. Those those are my kind of go-tos. And then... To be honest, anyone smaller, I love buying jewellery from individuals who make stuff on Instagram. Once you get into the kind of wormhole of finding ethical and sustainable brands, it's actually really exciting. Yeah, that's that's what I'd recommend. It's more fun to shop that way as well, isn't it? And, and you know, you're supporting smaller businesses, so there's definitely satisfaction to be found in that. So perhaps you can tell us what is next for you and the team at Birdsong then going forwards from here. So we're really excited. We've got a lot going on this year. Um, yeah, we are launching our new website and our new collection very soon uh, in the next couple of months. And um, we've also got our Patreon account. So if you want to, you know, sponsor us from £1 a month, that's going to help us pay for more lobbying work because we really, we're doing quite a lot of behind the scenes work. Like we've been talking to MPs, talking and advocating for kind of more change. And we're especially interested in how we can build a better high street after Brexit, after COVID, and make it more inclusive, more sustainable, and full of nice little businesses like ours who, you know, generate wealth and income and, and happiness to the local economy. So, um, you know, we're working on quite a lot behind the scenes stuff. We've expanded our team, which is really exciting. And in the next few years, we'd love to have a model where we can kind of like franchise what we're doing. And we're also going to be hopefully towards the end of the year, um, making it so that people can subscribe and use our patterns so that you can sew our designs from home or from your local high street. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're headed. And I think it's a really exciting idea for us, expansion that's not just tied to creating more product, but tied to culture change. And it's been really, really lovely. Now the team are vaccinated. We've been seeing our makers for the first time in like a year. You know, we didn't see them for such a long time. And it's it really is giving me like another burst of motivation. Just being able to to be in the same room is is delightful. Oh, it sounds like you're really innovating there with kind of different models and different different techniques. So that's super exciting to see where you're where you're headed in the next year or so. Sophie, I'd like to end the podcast each week by asking perhaps if there's something um, inspiring our guest at the moment. So is there anything that you can share with our listeners today that you'd like them to take away with them? Absolutely. I'm reading a book that is spot on for everything I've just been talking about. It talks about feminist teas made by unfeminist brands and it talks about labour rights, garment workers, all that kind of stuff. It's a book by Koa Beck called White Feminism and I'm halfway through it and it's incredible. And 
yeah, for anyone wanting to see the the link between feminism and fashion and workers' rights, it's an absolute must read. It's so well researched, beautifully written. Definitely get a copy. I'm going to put it. We've got a birdsong um, bookshop.org bookshop where you can like look at the books that inspire us. And 10% from each link goes to us, which is great. Um, each sale, I should say. So, yeah, I'll put it on there and share it on our socials. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. And so I will be sure to put all of those suggestions that you've you've kind of listed throughout our conversation today. But if our listeners want to find out more about you or more about Birdsong, where can they find you online? We're at www.birdsong.london or at Birdsong London on Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Facebook, <laughs> LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, I definitely head to our Instagram because beautiful pictures of clothes and you can get to know our makers. Absolutely. You've got some beautiful things on there and you're definitely championing a brilliant cause. So to our listeners at home, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Headway. As always, you can find the notes for the show on our website at head-way.co.uk. And a massive thank you to you, Sophie, for your time and all of the lessons you've taught us today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and learning all about you and the brand. Thank you so much for having me. And a big thank you to our listeners for joining this week's episode. As always, you'll be able to find the show notes and social media accounts for this week's episode on our website at www.head-way.co.uk. Take care and until next time.